morning, everyone. Can I invite you to stand? And uh, the last few weeks, we've been praying the Lord's Prayer together, just as a reminder, I suppose, that we're not, we're not coming here just as some sort of a little club to, you know, to learn a few things about this and that. We're here because this is God's house. We're here because he wants to meet with us. We're here because by his spirit, he wants to continually transform each of us. And that, that's quite an amazing thing to think, that actually by the Holy Spirit, he's communicating as far as we're allowing him to with every person here. So just to recognize that, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. The words should come up there on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As we forgive us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the I wonder if you've noticed as our use of technology has increased dramatically over the years that we seem to be measuring more and more things. The amount of time that we spend on our screens, that, that seems to pop up. Actually, the amount of times you lift up your phone in the course of a day, another metric. The time needed before we arrive somewhere, that pops up on our screen in the sat-nav in the car. And we even get emails from companies saying, we haven't seen you for a few weeks. Why don't you come and visit our website? And what about all those measurements we get from our wearable tech these days? How many people try and do 10,000 steps every day? Yeah, quite a few. Um, we measure floors climbed. We measure calories burned. You, you know your heartbeat at every moment of the day. You know your temperature. The list goes on. And recently, I was talking to somebody one morning and I said, just by way of conversation, did you sleep well? And the person said to me, I don't know, I'll have to check. <laughs> and I thought, what? So out came the phone and they were able to tell me the amount of hours and minutes that they'd slept, how much of that sleep was rapid eye movement sleep, how much of that sleep was deep sleep, how often they'd stirred in the night. And it was only then that they said, no, I didn't actually have a very good sleep at all. And you know, when you stop and think about it, we really did seem to get on fine without all of those metrics beforehand. And I'm sure, I'm sure some of them definitely have a positive impact, but I do wonder whether the provision of some of these <clears throat> are done by commercially astute companies and actually they influence our motivations. So they create a motivation for us which it seems is primarily advantageous to the company as opposed to the individual. Now we can see this principle at work in, in the wider society too, as the ideology of individualism continues to become more and more prevalent. Individual rights have risen and risen and risen in importance, haven't they? People want to have them. They want their rights, they want to be right. They want to have opinions, they want to have opinions heard. And by providing the means and the metrics 
Social media, operated by commercially astute companies, remember, can directly influence our motivations in ways that arguably aren't, aren't in our best interests. Now, that is the way of the world, isn't it? And while we're part of this world, while we live undeniably in this world, and we are to make a difference in the world, as, as followers of Jesus, it's like we're living in exile. Because the kingdom that we belong to is the kingdom of God. We're living in this society, but we belong to the kingdom of God. And these last few weeks, we've been having a look and seeing, what, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Those terms are used interchangeably. And what about this idea of motivation and, and of metrics? What does that look like in the kingdom of God? Is it different? So we're going to take another look at a parable that Jesus told to get some insight. At the, start of, at the start of the book of Matthew, we're going to look at Matthew 20, by the way. At the start of the book of Matthew was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and that was like his entire manifesto about what the kingdom of God was like. That was where everything was laid out. And then in these subsequent parables, particularly told to his disciples, Jesus was explaining some of those principles that was laid out in that time. So just before we read um, the first 16 chapters of Matthew 20, a couple of things in terms of context. Firstly, this parable is bookended at the start of it and at the end of it by Jesus saying these things. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's what he said at the start. And at the end of it, he says this, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Those, whenever you stop and think about it, those are, are sobering words. And those are a clear reminder of just how different, how dramatically different the kingdom of God is to the way of the world. Secondly, this parable is in part an answer to a question that Peter asked to Jesus when he said this. We, that, that's Peter and the rest of the disciples, he said, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? So keep those things in mind. Let's read together then from uh, Matthew 21 to 16. Let me read. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Nobody hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those <clears throat> who were hired first 
came, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and, and, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray that we'd be open to what you want to teach us from it today. We thank you that every day you want to make us more like Jesus. You want to continually transform the way we think, the way we act, just the way we are. Thank you for your patience with us. And thank you for your deep desire to do that. And we pray now for a willingness on our part to listen. To listen to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we have another parable, another story. Jesus taking an everyday situation that, that everybody he was talking to would have been very well aware of and would have recognized but the story was dramatically exaggerated to make a profound point. A simple story making a profound point. So in that, in that era, day laborers were pretty commonplace. Those without constant work, but they still needed some sort of work in order to get money, in order to feed, in order to provide for family, and so on and so on. So those people would have congregated at a place that was, that was known to them, and a place that was known to, to uh, employers who were going to be needing that sort of labor. And Jesus likens one of those landowners, one of those employers needing labor to the kingdom of heaven. So already we think that although picking grapes in a vineyard would have been a very normal occurrence, there's going to be something different about this story. There's going to be something different that comes about from what Jesus said. And the first thing that would have raised eyebrows in the story was the fact that the landowner returned to the employment pool, the, the day laborer uh, connection. He returned there five times. Five times. He started at, at 6 a.m., then again at 9 a.m., at midday, at 3 p.m., and finally at 5 p.m. So from a purely commercial and, and transactional perspective, that really would not have made a lot of sense. The strong, fit, hard-working, probably young laborers, they would have been the ones who were chosen at the beginning. It kind of reminds me of those days, I don't know whether it's a, a bit of a nightmare in your mind of whenever you had to line up and get chosen for a team back in school. Do you remember those days? And it was the ones who were good at football or netball or basketball or whatever. They were chosen first and there was always somebody was left till the end. Well, that, that's the sort of picture there. So as time went on, the, the pool of laborers would have been increasingly less appealing to prospective employers. 
And yet, this landowner returned five times. Why did he do that? Well, look back at what happened the final time he went to the town. He saw people standing around and he asked them why they're not working. No one has hired us, was the response. Then go out and join the others in, in my vineyard. That was what he said to them. This wasn't some sort of transactional decision. It looks like he wasn't even after any more workers at that stage. This was something else entirely. This was less to do with normal business practices and more to do with people and the value of people. Now, if that raised eyebrows and if that piqued a bit of interest, what came next was really pretty shocking. So it was time for the laborers to get paid. And to begin with, the last ones arrived first and they were paid first and that really wasn't very normal. But even more scandalous was the fact that everybody got the same amount of money. Everyone got the same pay, irrespective of the amount of time that they'd actually worked. Outrageous, scandalous, it's just not fair. You can picture the reaction. Just imagine if they had Twitter back then. Now, look at the response of the landowner. He addresses one of those who's feeling particularly aggrieved. Friend, he says to him. This one word is yet another telling insight that Jesus is making about the kingdom of heaven. This was a hired laborer. They probably never met and might never meet again. And yet he was addressed as friend. And the landowner then goes on to gently address the root of the matter, namely that the attitude of the laborer and those around him was very self-centered. He was really only thinking about himself and the implications on him. He certainly wasn't thinking about the landowner. He wasn't thinking about the other laborers, but rather just himself. And the landowner's final comment draws the story to a conclusion and brings the different attitudes into stark contrast. Did you hear that little phrase or that sentence? Are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? The envy of the laborer and the generosity of the landowner. Two opposing attitudes. One very much self-centered. The other very much others-centered. One from the kingdom of the world and one from the kingdom of heaven. I wonder what Peter was thinking at this stage. Do you remember the question that, that prompted Jesus to tell the story where Peter said, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? What are we going to get? And Jesus answered that question by showing just how different the kingdom of heaven is. You don't do things in order to get a reward through some sort of contractual, contractual obligation. No, in, in the kingdom of heaven, everything is done in response to the generosity of God. Everything is done in response to the generosity of God. That's to be our motivation. Our, our chosen intentional motivation. The abundant generosity of God. The abundant, outrageous, scandalous, 
immeasurable, incredible, whatever word you want to use, generosity of God. God's generosity is shown in his love for us. In the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, in Jesus' life, in Jesus' death, in Jesus' resurrection, in Jesus' ongoing intercession today for us. God's generosity is shown in the gift of the Holy Spirit, in his grace, in the gift of each other, in his church, in the gift of creation, in the promise of the restoration of all things and of an eternity in his presence. God's abundant generosity is available to all who believe and accept it. Having the generosity of God then as our motivation certainly gives perspective to life, doesn't it? That perspective brings hope whenever the circumstances are extremely difficult because at times they will be. It also helps mitigate pride when we're tempted to compare ourselves to others or be complacent or self-congratulatory when things are going particularly well. We started this morning speaking about things that we measure, about metrics. So what metrics could be helpful then to see how we are ensuring that our motivation is indeed the generosity of God? Let's consider just two as we endeavor to apply this reality to our lives, both individually and collectively. As we endeavor to allow God by his spirit to change us, to transform us, to move us in new directions, to take bits that aren't good away and to replace that with things that are helpful and good and more Christ-like. So the first thing I would say is gratitude. Not wildly complicated. Gratitude. I'm sure we've all had similar thoughts to those laborers in different situations, haven't we? Look what I've done. Look how much time and effort I've put into that. Why are they getting that handed to them? It's not fair. Has anyone never thought that? A surefire antidote to that kind of self-centered thinking is, is intentional gratitude to God. It's a choice for us to look intently at what God has done for us and continues to do for us. And to remember too that it is all a gift, a gift that is freely given. And it's not down to anything that we've done to earn it or to deserve it. There are times that we can know the intensity of gratitude. Perhaps in gatherings such as this, that something happens where we can feel really grateful or in other significant circumstances. Things can provoke, us, provoke our emotions to be intensely grateful at times. But I wonder if something we can do to add to those times is to be consistent in our gratitude. Consistent in the, in the everyday routine of just what we all know as normal life. In, in the first letter to Thessalonians, we're encouraged to do this, to be thankful in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. 
Now, sometimes we think God's will is a bit mysterious, and, and at times in situations, maybe it's not as straightforward as others, but this part seems pretty obvious. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. What could that look like? What are some practices we could introduce in daily life and practice in order to experience that consistency of gratitude? As, as an aside, let's not fall into the trap of thinking that practicing is only for exams or sport or musical instruments or something. It's only through practicing that we learn anything at all, and that is entirely true of our faith as for anything else. So what could that look like? Perhaps we could read a favorite psalm at the start of the day or, or several times in the day. Give thanks to the Lord. The, the psalms are full of them. I'm sure you've all got one. In fact, let me just read a wee bit of one of mine. Praise the Lord, O my soul, it says in Psalm 103, all my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And so it goes on. This is an amazing gift that we've got. We even have it on our phones these days as well. There's nothing to stop us from reading that, from using that, from allowing God's word to move us to gratitude. Thanking God at mealtimes, it's another obvious thing. I guess for me, I always grew up and we said grace and it maybe took a while for me to realize why. It wasn't just something that happened before you ate. It's showing gratitude. It's recognizing that everything comes from God. It's recognizing the reality of that. Just this month, I gave our two older boys here at university notebooks to jot down things that they're thankful for, anything. A nice breakfast, a decent walk, recognizing a new shape of leaf, a shade of color, a chat with a friend, something that you laugh at, anything at all. Another thing to do is picking something normal in your day and thinking, thinking through how many hands, how many individual humans have been involved in getting that to you and thanking God for that and for them. A cup of tea is a pretty simple thing. Somebody has picked those tea leaves. Somebody else has probably taken them into somewhere to get them processed. Somebody's been involved in, in putting them in, in the boxes or the, well, the tea bags, I suppose. Not sure how that works. Somebody's been involved in transporting them. Somebody's been involved in stocking on them the shelves. Somebody's been involved in, in at the checkout. When you stop and think of these simple, regular things, how many, many hands have been involved in that? There's so many ways that we can thank God for what he's provided for us in the everyday. Thank God for it all. In James 1, we read this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who doesn't change like the shifting shadows. 
So what would it look like this week to proactively develop that attitude of gratitude? Why not even now, just in 10 seconds in your mind, commit to doing one new thing? One new thing, something. Maybe some of you might manage two or three, but even one, I think that's a good start. One new thing to develop that approach, that attitude of gratitude. And if you're feeling very brave, afterwards you can tell somebody what that is. So that was the first metric, if you like, gratitude. The second one is serving others. With the generosity of God as our motivation and gratitude as our prevailing attitude, service to others really is a natural overflow of that. God's giving to us and our acceptance of that through Jesus enables us to experience ongoing transformation. And so our self-centeredness is replaced by other-centeredness. And so we can increasingly give of ourselves to others. This means giving of our resources, of our time, of our abilities. It means giving of ourselves in relationships, in careers. It also means giving out of God's abundance because we're continually aware of that. Giving out of our own strength has obvious limitations, but giving out of God's abundance doesn't. By way of encouragement, Peter, remember the question he asked that prompted all of this? Peter said this later in, uh, in the first of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Here, here's what he said. Each one should use whatever gift he received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So Peter clearly practiced and learned and allowed Jesus to transform him. So what could that practically look like for us this week? What about regularly asking ourselves this question? What is the depth of my love for others? What is the depth of my love for others? That brings a focus, doesn't it? And a challenge. And yes, that love is supposed to be evident to those who are close to us, to our families, to our friends, but it doesn't stop there. That's another difference in the kingdom of heaven. Remember back to Jesus' sermon, his manifesto, if you like, for the kingdom of heaven. What did he say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. So what, what does that look like this week? What does that look like? Who are the people, maybe in our workplace or maybe in our neighborhood or maybe in a friendship circle, there's somebody that we find quite irritating. I don't know. What, what does that look like? Because that is a very real metric. Serving others, loving others in that way, giving of ourselves to others, but all of that coming because we're recipients of the abundant generosity the endless, infinite generosity of God. So another, that's another thought. Thinking now for 10 seconds, who are those couple of people that are coming to mind? 
that you can intentionally see, how can I serve them better? Without, without wanting to get any gain from me at all, but simply as evidence that I am being transformed, that I'm growing in Christ-likeness, that God is changing me, that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if you're really, really feeling brave, you can tell that person to somebody else as well. The abundant generosity of God, then, if that's our motivation, let's seek his strength this week in our response to that. That's our starting point. That's, that's, that's what we want to give perspective to our day. And then seek to embody gratitude and serving others. In the everyday humdrum of life, here in the city of Edinburgh where we live, and as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we are citizens of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, thank you for for how you've communicated it, for how you've demonstrated it. Our desire is to be more like you. We want our lives to, to reflect the attributes that we see in you, that we find in your word. So today, as we stand on the edge of another week looking into it, we want to offer ourselves to you. We think of those couple of situations around gratitude and serving others that have come to our mind that that actually have been prompted by you in our minds. Give us the strength to persevere with those. Keep drawing to your mind the selflessness that Jesus demonstrated. I thank you. Thank you for your choice to want to change us. Uh, So here we are, available and ready, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.